Hey guys, it's Andrew, and today we're going to talk about lockdown law. Now, as you may know, other countries are starting to lock down. Germany, France, Canada, all of them have started to shut down again due to the next wave of the pandemic. But what we're here to talk about today is the United States. And now certain states have started to lock down once again. California, Michigan, New Mexico. What we're seeing now is a return of some of the restrictions that we saw earlier this year in March, April, and May of 2000. Now, as we move into this time of re-locking down this next wave of the pandemic, what we need to understand is the laws and what authority the governments use in order to place laws on individuals, states, and businesses. And also note that while during the first wave of the pandemic, many of these laws were generally accepted, they may not be accepted the second time around. In fact, there may be challenges to these restrictions and laws. So what we're gonna look at today is three things. We're gonna look at the federal, state, and local authority for restrictions during the pandemic. Then we're gonna look at the legal precedent, which is the case that governments rely on in order to enact restrictions related to public health and the pandemic. And lastly, we're gonna look at possible challenges. That is, how individuals, businesses, and groups could potentially challenge coronavirus restrictions. Now, let's first turn to the federal government. Now, the federal government is generally a government of very limited powers. That is, the powers of the federal government are generally limited to what's in the Constitution or what's enacted by specific legislation of Congress. Therefore, at the federal level, we don't see some of the same restrictions that we see on the state and local level. So what we do have on the federal level is really guidance from two agencies. We're gonna talk about those two. The CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control, and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. Now, the CDC was formed in the 1940s. The initial role of the CDC was to fight malaria, and that's why it's based in Atlanta, Georgia, because at the time, malaria was mostly a Southern issue. But the real call of the CDC is to detect and monitor new diseases, as well as diseases that are pervasive through the United States. The CDC was given legal authority by the public Health Service Act and other federal regulation to take any measures deemed reasonably necessary to prevent the interstate spread of communicable disease, including inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, and the destruction of animals or articles believed to be the source of infection. Once again, the focus of the CDC is to fight disease and infection. It's to determine new diseases, to determine how existing diseases are spreading, and to come up with ways and methods to fight that disease. Therefore, the regulations that are put out by the CDC are really aimed at treating the disease itself. Now, you compare that to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. OSHA is really aimed at protecting workers. Their call is to make sure that workers are provided with a safe workplace. Or more specifically, the General Duty Clause, which is in Section 5 of the 1970 Occupational Safety and Health Act, which is where their legal authority comes from, requires that employers provide each worker with an employment and place of employment which are free from recognized hazards that are causing or are likely to cause death 
or serious physical harm. Now, what this means in this context is that OSHA is setting the standards for the workplace. Now, that might be exactly how the workplace is set out, standards for distancing at the workplace, but it also involves personal protective equipment or PPE. Now, OSHA requires protection of the eyes, of the face, nose, mouth, as well as respiratory protection when it is called for by the scope of their employment. So once again, if it is within the scope of their employment that there could be some sort of damage to your eyes, your nose, something you'd breathe in, that's when OSHA would come into play and issue guidance. Now, often when they issue their guidance, it becomes the industry standard. For example, construction workers. They're known to work at job sites where they're breathing in dust, they're breathing in particles. Therefore, it is reasonable for them to be provided with some sort of respiratory cover in order to protect them from those particles. Now, that is really the scope of the federal regulation regarding the lockdown. It's really only limited to the CDC and OSHA. We haven't seen federal laws enacted that apply directly to the lockdown and the shutdowns and restrictions across the United States. Now, moving down a level to the states, the states also have authority to issue regulations. In fact, when most people think about regulations during the pandemic, they think of state regulations. They think of California, Michigan, other states that have put in fairly strict restrictions, and they've come from the top of the government, as in the state government. Now, most people have heard of the 10th Amendment. Now, the 10th Amendment says, in summary, that any power not reserved for the federal government is expressly given to the states or the people. Now, when the Supreme Court of the United States, or SCOTUS as we lawyers like to call it, has looked at the 10th Amendment, they found that the 10th Amendment is largely what's called a truism, or something that is so obvious that it almost doesn't need to be said. Therefore, we can follow the general principle that unless the federal government is directly ruling on something, the states have power to regulate. Now, we should note there is something in the Constitution called the Supremacy Clause. Now, we'll get into this with different topics, but what the Supremacy Clause states is that if the federal government is directly regulating a particular field or a particular area, then that would preempt or trump the state-level regulation. But putting that aside, let's look at how the states have regulated during the lockdown. They've largely come in two different forms. Now, state regulations have largely come in two separate forms. They've come in executive regulation, that is through executive orders coming from the governor, who is the chief of the executive branch of the state, and through the legislative branch, through bills and special regulation. There also has been, on the state level, some administrative guidance through individual state administrative agencies. For example, many states have a mini OSHA, that is, they have their own workplace protection agencies within those states, which can be used to regulate and set guidelines within the states. Now, once again, remember, they can't trump what's in the actual, now remember, they can't trump what's in the federal guidance, but what they can do is, the federal guidance can be treated as a floor, and the state can set a higher ceiling. Once again, they can set a higher standard than what is required 
at the federal level. So for example, if the federal level required that, let's say, tables in a restaurant are spaced six feet apart, they could reasonably say that within our particular state, we want them spaced eight feet apart. Or they could say they recommend restaurants operate at 50% capacity on a federal level, but on a state level, they could say, we only want you operating at 25% capacity, just out of an abundance of caution. Now we turn to local regulation. Now, there are two ways in which local governments, once again, cities, counties, towns, villages, get their authority. The first way is through home rule. And what home rule means is that the cities and localities have all the powers that are not expressly reserved for the state. That is, unless the state constitution or statutes say that a power is expressly and only the power of the state, the local governments can exercise that power. Therefore, for example, if there's no sort of regulation that says a city can't run an amusement park, well, then they could. But on the contrary, some states follow what's called Dillon's Rule, and that's named after a judge, Judge Dillon, who set a particular legal precedent. That legal precedent states that cities, localities, counties only have the powers expressly given to them by the state constitution and those powers that are incident to the exercise of that power. Now, what does that mean? That means if the state gives a city the power to tax its citizens, to issue a property tax, which is based on the percentage value of your home. Even if the state doesn't expressly say that they can send a bill by mail to your home, that would be something incident to the exercise of their taxation power. Therefore, they'd be able to perform that, but no more than that. And once again, those vary wildly depending on what state you're in could be in a home rule state or a Dillon's rule state. And that would change whether or not you might be able to potentially challenge those regulations. Now let's look at the precedent. Now the precedent for most of the regulations is a case known as Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Now the case used as legal precedent is the case Jacobson versus Massachusetts. This is a 1905 case involving smallpox, which was at the time a pandemic. Now, smallpox was a very serious disease that people had been fighting for centuries, and only recently did they invent vaccinations for smallpox. Now, Mr. Jacobson was a Swedish immigrant. Now, when he came from Sweden, he brought with him a horrible, horrible experience. He had been vaccinated as a child with an experimental early version of the smallpox vaccine. That traumatic experience scarred him for life. Not only did he not want to get the vaccine again when he arrived in the United States, but he didn't want to get the vaccine for his children because that first experience traumatized him so deeply. Now, the government implemented in his particular locality, it required him to get a mandatory smallpox vaccination. Now, Mr. Jacobson said, no, absolutely not. So the city threatened him with jail time and fined him $5. You may laugh right now at $5, but in 2020 dollars, converted from 1905, that's an $150 fine. Not too small. Now, Mr. Jacobson challenged the mandatory vaccination regulation by his state, saying that it was an unnecessary deprivation of his liberty, and therefore violated his substantial due process. That is one of his fundamental rights. 
And then we'll hit on due process more in other topics and also a little bit later. But the court, when it looked at this, said that liberty is subject to certain limitations for the sake of public health and public safety. Therefore, liberty does not run free with no regard for public health and public safety. That's simply not permissible. The government, through its use of what's called police power, which is not just what you think of as a police officer coming and clubbing you over the head, but rather all the powers exercised by the government to compel you to take a particular action, that the government can use its police power in order to compel you to take an action for the sake of public health and public safety. The court in Jacobson did exercise some limitations on how that power could be exercised. They said that the power could only be exercised as reasonably necessary to confront that particular public health crisis. And what we saw in 2020 was one of the Supreme Court justices, Justice Alito, commenting on the limitations of Jacobson and how, despite the fact that this case has been relied on by many different jurisdictions, including a 2020 site by the Fifth Circuit of Appeals in Texas, how there are limitations. And despite the fact that Jacobson does allow for the exercise of police power, what it does not allow is the unlimited emergency exercise of police powers that go unchecked in perpetuity. It doesn't allow this to go on forever. It's supposed to be a limited use of powers. Secondly, Justice Alito said that the facts in Jacobson are wildly different than what we're seeing here in 2020. What we're seeing here in 2020 is not a local issue. In Jacobson, it was a local restriction to face a local issue which was limited in scope. What we have here are sweeping regulations that are all across the country, which don't really take into account local facts, local situations, and local scenarios, such as what the case numbers might be in a rural county versus a more populous county. And therefore, there's potential for these regulations to be challenged based on the same precedent that is used to uphold it. Now, since the beginning of the pandemic, there have been dozens and dozens of challenges to restrictions, both state and local throughout the United States. In Michigan, a barber challenged the Michigan restrictions that were going to fine him and potentially give him criminal penalties. He took that to court and prevailed. Okay, so there's two main challenges, equal protection and due process. Now, equal protection says that similarly situated individuals should be treated similarly. So in this case, if you have two separate stores, which are treated as a group, as a business, they should be treated similarly. Therefore, the big box store should be treated similarly as the local retail store. And one thing we've seen throughout this pandemic is certain, certain businesses being classified as essential, while others are classified as non-essential. For example, gyms being classified as non-essential, while liquor stores are classified as essential. And once again, when you look at that, you say, are we really treating these two businesses similarly? The second possibility for challenge is through the due process clause. Now there's two types of due process, substantive due process, which we really won't focus on as much here, and procedural due process. The second potential for challenge is under the due process clause. We find due process both under the Fifth Amendment and the 14th Amendment. And now there's two types of due process. The first is substantive, which we won't get into today. And the second is procedural. Now, procedural due process requires notice, requires a neutral decision maker, and requires evidence. Now, in a lot of cases, there really hasn't been notice 
for certain restrictions that have gone out. There hasn't been an opportunity for parties to air their opinions, for facts to come out, for evidence to come out. And that's one potential avenue for challenge. So as we go forward and see this next round of potential lockdowns and restrictions, we can certainly expect that businesses will continue to challenge those particular restrictions and will hold them to task in courts of law. Now, if you like this content, please like, subscribe, leave a comment below. I'm open to many suggestions on what you'd like to hear. And if you really enjoyed this, please let me know. But until next time, this episode is adjourned.